The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, stop trying to bribe your way into the Olympics with beaver pelts and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 525 with guest Stephen Tobe, recorded live Tuesday, February 9th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who says, ambition is just a poor excuse for not having enough sense to be lazy, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard. Richard and Carl, however you want to slice it, it's fine with us, really. Indeed. How are you, man? I am well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Another blizzard coming our way here. At must this be wintertime. Time of recording. And, uh, you know, during the MVP summit, while you guys are watching the Olympics and going down to the summit, I'll be taking my daughters on a magical mystery tour and uh, flying all around the United States and hopefully not getting snowed in anywhere. Yeah, hopefully. It may be an exercise in <laughs> flight delays. Film you. at 11. <laughs> we'll see how that goes <laughs> on a later What could go show. wrong? Yeah. All right. Let's get right into Better Know Framework now. All right. And seeing as how we have Mr. Tobe on the line here, uh, I thought I would pick something from system.threading.tasks, ah. and which is the you know parallel task library. Now I'm going to talk about not just the task class, but the task of T result class. Oh, so this is a generic. Okay, that represents an asynchronous operation that can return a value. So. You got a task, which is just for executing a task that doesn't return anything, more like a, a sub in VB or a void proc right. in C sharp. Uh, but if you want to return a value, you got to use task of T result. And the remarks say uh, task of T result instances may be created in a variety of ways. The most common approach is by using the task's factory property to retrieve a task factory of T result instance that can be used to create tasks for several purposes. So, and it has a couple examples there. Task of T result also provides constructors that initialize the task but do not schedule it for execution. For performance reasons, the start new method should be the preferred mechanism for creating and scheduling computational tasks. But for scenarios where creation and scheduling must be separated, 
The constructors may be used and the task's start method may then be used to schedule the task for execution at a later time. So I love the task and we'll talk about that with Stephen. But uh, it sort of combines the idea of a thread and weight handles and controlling the thread and all of that stuff all in one class. So kind of cool. Hey, Richard, who's talking to us? Got a great email for you. You'll enjoy this. Hi, Carl and Richard. I wanted to start out by saying it was a pleasure to meet Richard at the SoCal Code Camp in January. I'm a longtime fan of the show, and I appreciate you coming down for the event. I wanted to let you know how your show inspired me to take action. Back in episode 476, Is Software Development Too Complex? Oh, yes. One of the topics discussed was the lack of beginner-level sessions at conferences and how there was a need for speakers to cover the introductory topics. I have taken on that challenge. Nice. When the call for sessions came out for the SoCal Code Camp, I decided I would do some introductory sessions on various topics targeting at the developer with three to six months of .NET experience. I'm not a superstar programmer, just a solid developer somewhere between intermediate and advanced. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I could put together some good information to help bring other developers up to speed based on the response, because the SoCal Code Camp has this great website where people actually get to vote on the sessions. Wow. It looks like I succeeded. All of this was based on inspiration from .NET Rocks. Keep up the great work. It helps me keep in touch with the world outside my cubicle walls. And that's from Jeremy Clark from Anaheim, California. Fabulous, Jeremy. Glad we could uh, help. Indeed, and always good to uh, to get new speakers. You know, it reminds me, our friend Tom Robbins, who's the guy who invented CodeCamp, right. that was really the point of CodeCamp, was local people speaking to local people. Right. We're the odd ducks for wanting to jump in on those sorts of things, and people invite us to come down. And while we're happy to do it, I'm still always cognizant of the fact that this is all about growing your own local community. So every time I hear that there's a new speaker, I'm really excited about it. Fabulous. It doesn't always have to be the most advanced topics. That's right. Now, here's the kicker. There's a PS. I understand if you don't read this email on the air because you read my email in episode 487, but you still owe me a mug from that. Oh, now he gets two. Uh There you go. Maybe a mug and a t-shirt. Yeah, a mug and maybe a hoodie. (laughs) There you go. Okay. (laughs) A hoodie you can wear at his presentation. Exactly. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, anything, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Well, Richard, I'm really excited. I'd like to welcome back to the show Stephen Tobe. Stephen is uh, uh, lead program manager on the Parallel Computing Platform team at Microsoft. He's also a contributing editor to MSDN Magazine. Welcome back, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. We were talking about all sorts of parallel stuff uh, that we really couldn't talk about back in April 2008 in New York City. And since then, we've had a few... um, Microsoft is on the show talking about parallel computing and particularly the uh, the great features that are coming in .NET 4. And a lot of the things that we couldn't talk about are there now in .NET 4. Well, we'll be there. Absolutely. Or we, you know, we were talking about them as on the horizon, sort of just as a, a glint in our eye or a gleam in our eye. Yeah. And uh, now they're actually there. They're in the Beta 2 in the RC that's uh, due out shortly or by the time the show airs, we'll, we'll have already come out. And uh, we'll we'll be in the RTM release in April, so it's it's very exciting. You must be very proud of your team and uh, to be able to get such very important fundamental uh, tools into the .NET framework. Oh, absolutely! The team's done a remarkable job in in taking a very complex set of of concepts and uh, of underlying infrastructure and turning it into something that 
takes these difficult problems and actually brings it to uh, developers from everywhere. Uh, I mean, obviously, there, there's still a lot of challenges with parallel computing, even with what we're delivering. And in nowhere are we saying that the, the new support in .NET 4 or Visual C++ 10 or, or uh, Visual Studio 2010 makes this stuff easy, uh, but we do believe it makes it significantly easier. Uh, we've already started to see a, a lot of uh, customers come back and tell us that exact thing. So we're very excited. One uh, one of the features we haven't talked about, and I don't know if we can actually, it's been a while, is uh, parallel debugging. Mm-hmm. Is there is there anything in Visual Studio 2010 to to help you debug uh, parallel, um, you know, multi-threaded applications or multitasked? I guess we should say. Yeah, absolutely. We spent. Uh, uh, probably just as much time working on tooling support in Visual Studio for parallelism as we have working on uh, programming models and runtime support. Uh, so with, specifically with regards to debugging and debugging of correctness, uh, we've got two new tool windows that are in Visual Studio. And this is in all versions of Visual Studio uh, except for Visual Studio Express. Um, so you get this with Professional and Premium and Ultimate. Um, basically, one window is called Parallel Stacks. Um, if you imagine today the activity you go through when you've got uh, a plethora of threads in your application, you're trying to figure out what's going on across all your threads, you need to start doing this hunt and peck operation where you open up your threads window and you start clicking around and you see what the debugger jumps to and what call stack it shows and so forth. There's no really good way to visualize all of this in one, at one time. And as you start getting into higher and higher core count machines and you start introducing more and more threads, this becomes unmanageable and unfeasible. So one of the things we've added is this new parallel stacks window, which provides sort of a coalesced view of all of the threads in your application in a very visual manner. If you imagine you have, let's say, four threads in your application, and um, three of them, or let's say all of them start in, call, in, in frame A and then move up to B, uh, but then two of them branch off to CD and the other two branch off to EF. Um, if you were just looking at these four threads, you'd see four th- separate stacks. But when you look at it in the parallel stacks window, you see a single rectangle that contains A, B, and then you see two arrows coming out of it pointing to two other boxes, one containing uh, C, D, and the other containing E, F, showing how these four threads all started in the same place and then branched off. Um, And it'll show you how many threads are in each of the various locations, but it's also not just a static picture. It's fully interactive like the rest of the debugging windows. So you can explore, you can click around, you can pivot the view to see, for example, um, I want to focus not on sort of this threads, but I want to see um, with a sort of a method specific focus. So I want to see focus on method B and see all threads coming into it and all threads coming out of it. Or wow. uh, you can say, I don't want to focus on threads. I actually, I'm, I'm using this new task-based program model, these new task abstractions. I want to get rid of all the cruft that's not related to tasks and only focus on uh, only focus uh, on tasks. Um, and you know, you can. There's lots of support for managing scale. There's this bird's eye view where you can very easily sort of pan around the image. Uh, there's filtering support, so you can say, I only want to focus on these threads and remove everything else from the picture. Uh, so it's a very, very powerful tool for visualizing at scale uh, what your application is doing and kind of relying on human intuition to then, kind of, we pick up on these visual patterns. And so you can mm. look at this picture and say, you know, oh, I see exactly what the problem is because all of my threads at the top of their stack are blocked in a monitor.enter or something like that. Yeah. Um, the other neat thing is when you combine this, uh, or personally, I like to combine this with the new feature in Visual Studio, the multi-monitor support. Uh, well, I actually, I'll drag my uh, parallel stacks window over onto a separate monitor. 
Uh, and then anytime I step in the debugger or break in the debugger, my entire monitor is showing me you know, on one monitor the state of my application with regards to all of my threads. It's mm. a you know, really pretty picture I can very easily digest. Um, so I think it's a nice example of how multiple features in the new Visual Studio come to play together. Uh, so that's the parallel stacks window. Uh, there's also parallel tasks. Um, one of the problems developers have had with sort of asynchronous and concurrent parallel programming in the past is you launch all these work items and you have no idea what they're up to. You know, you use thread right. pool queue as a work item and it goes off into the void. Uh, and at some point later it might get run or not and you, you have trouble figuring out why. There have been some very, very advanced power tools, uh, such as in the Son of Strike extensions uh, for WinDBG, uh, that uh, that allow you to kind of mine the thread pool queues and so forth. But it's, it's always been a chore. Uh, so one of the things we've introduced in this release is this parallel, st- parallel tasks window, which gives you a view of all the tasks in your application, um, not just the ones that are currently running, but also the ones that have been scheduled. So there's actually a, a, a kind of a, a good integration between the runtime and the debugger, where the runtime exposes a mechanism whereby the debugger can ask the runtime, what, what tasks do you have queued up? Uh, and then those tasks will be exposed in this window, along with all the tasks that are currently running, as well as tasks that are currently waiting. And if they're waiting, uh, meaning they're blocked on a synchronization primitive or they're waiting on another task, uh, another task to complete, whether implicitly or explicitly, uh, explicitly meaning they said task.wait or implicitly meaning maybe they were a parent task that created a bunch of child tasks and it's waiting for all of its children to complete implicitly. You get all that rich information in that window. Um, those parent-child relationships are exposed uh, through this window as well, so you can get a, a tree hierarchy showing uh, all these relationships. Um, and again, it's fully interactive where you can sort of uh, interact with this window, jump to various places in your application, switch back and forth between tasks and the threads that are actually executing those tasks and so forth. What I find really exciting about this kind of level of monitoring is and normally the developer is not actually declaring these threads, right? It's no, he's not saying create thread anywhere. He's simply calling into the parallel task library and it's up to the library to decide how to spin up these threads. So you're actually able to see what the library's doing. Tasks are the new threads. Yeah, and if you're using tasks directly yourself, um, you don't want to see the underlying thread infrastructure. You want to see the tasks that you're creating. You want to see things at the level of the program model that you're actually using in your application. And it's important to to note here that we should be using tasks instead of threads from now on, right? I mean, Absolutely. this is basically why you created the task library, to give the developer a, a little bit more than you get, you know, a little, a, a little more removed, but a lot more power and a lot less complex than a, than a thread. Absolutely. And there are a variety of reasons you want to move up to that, that higher level of abstraction. One is sort of the rich functionality that's provided on the task class itself, or then on the higher level abstractions like parallel link and parallel for and parallel for each and other models then built on top of task. Um, but the other reason is uh, around performance. Uh, there's a significant cost that comes to spinning up threads, having lots of threads, tearing down threads over and over, you know, over and over, which is why we arrive at things like thread pools uh, for managing those system resources and uh, alleviating that responsibility from the developer kind of amortizing the costs of these threads across uh, these new abstractions. So for both performance reasons and for kind of simplicity reasons uh, and minimizing the complexity and the number of concepts you have to understand when you write your applications, uh, it, we definitely recommend programming at the task level rather than at the thread level. There are still some very, very few kind of niche cases where you still want to 
understand uh, or, or still program against threads directly. But first and foremost, you know, when you, when you sit down to write your application and you need this stuff, definitely start at, at tasks rather than threads and only dive down if you absolutely have to. Let's uh, tell us about the concurrency visualizer, which I think is really exciting. Yeah, so uh, this sort of moves from the world of, uh, of debugging to the world of sort of debugging for correctness uh, to debugging for performance, um, you know, otherwise profiling. known as profiling. Exactly. Uh, so Visual Studio has actually had, sort of, uh, unfortunately, a uh, an under-recognized feature, and that is the, the profiler built into Visual Studio, which is a phenomenal tool for helping developers to improve the performance of their applications. And it's amazing how many folks I talk to that aren't aware that Visual Studio contains this tool um, or haven't tried using it or aren't aware of it. Um, it's, it's terrific. And one of the new things we've added in Visual Studio 2010 is a new set of features for the profiler uh, targeted specifically at uh, parallel concurrent applications. In the past, the, the profiler has had one of a few different mechanisms for understanding what's happening in your application. Typically, either you use sampling or you use instrumentation. Uh, sampling basically means that the profiler every once in a while is, you know, every few microseconds, whatever it may be, is looking at the state of your application, is taking a snapshot of it, and then is using that to deduce some information such as how often you were in certain functions or um, how many times you called, a, uh, how much time you spent somewhere, or how many uh, calls you made to a certain operation and so forth. There's also in the instrumentation option, which is the profiler basically inserts um, uh, enter and exit functionality at the beginning of every function, so it gets a very, a very accurate picture of how many times you enter particular functions and how long it takes. Um, one of the things that we've done for Visual 2010 is added this new ETW-based profiler, uh, or event tracing for Windows. Event tracing for Windows is a, a very lightweight tracing mechanism that's built into Windows uh, ever since Windows, the Windows kernel v6. So, uh, or actually, I think it existed before that, but we take advantage of functionality that uh, was added in V6. So this is Windows Vista and beyond. Um, and basically, this is plumbed throughout the kernel, and the kernel is able to output uh, a significant amount of information about pretty much anything you imagine the kernel doing, including uh, threading-related operations. So anytime uh, a thread gets context-switched in or out, a trace gets generated. Uh, anytime uh, a thread blocks, a trace gets generated and so forth. Uh, anytime you read or write I.O., a trace gets generated. Um, and so we can mine all of this data and provide visual pictures that demonstrate across all the threads in your application, across all your cores, and so forth, what your application was actually doing, and provide some real insight into the performance of your application as a result. So the concurrency profiler, or the concurrency visualizer in Visual Studio 2010, um, basically turns on this tracing functionality. In addition to the tracing in the kernel, it also enables some uh, user mode tracing where it'll trace things like every every millisecond that'll take a picture of what all your threads are doing. Uh, it also turns on some tracing that's built into the parallel libraries, the task parallel library, parallel link, and so forth, such that traces are generated anytime a parallel four is run or a p-link query is run. Um, and then it's able to take all that data, do significant analysis over it, and generate one of three views. Uh, the first view is a CPU utilization view that shows mm -hmm. over the lifetime of your application, sort of with time on the x-axis and number of cores on the y-axis, how much of your system you are actually using in your application, how much were being used by other processes on the system, and how much was idle. So kind of a very quick very look, cool. understand 
Exactly. Yeah. Understand what's going on, where you might have opportunities to take advantage of parallelism, where you currently have some idle resources, uh, and kind of get a sense for if you've already parallelized where things may have gone wrong, and if you haven't parallelized where you might want to. And you get to see system process activity too, which is kind of important if you're calling into the system. Absolutely. You get to see what your process is doing and what other things are doing. So you can get a sense for if I'm only using one CPU, is that because other processes were taking up three or is it mm. because I just haven't got done a good job of paralyzing that particular portion of my application? Uh, so once you kind of have that initial view, you can then dive from that down into this thread, thread view uh, where, again, on the, the x-axis you have time, but now on the y-axis you have threads. And in fact, you kind of have these swim lanes that represent what each thread was doing uh, at any moment in time. And so green represents execution, red represents blocking, yellow represents preemption. There's a whole slew of colors. You can see when threads were paging, you can see when threads are sleeping. And at a very quick glance, you can understand just what your application was doing and then drill in for more details. This is like... It's like fresh water when you're when you've been crawling through the desert for years. That's what this is. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, that's that's an analogy I'm going to start using from now on. I like that. <laughs> yeah, you found an oasis in that's the right. in the desert of like, multi-threading. At last, I can visualize some of this crap because it's so hard to visualize these abstract ideas when you're coding the stuff. You just have to lie on your understanding of how they work. You can't. Uh, you can't use your your just uh, uh, powers of observation sometimes. Well, and doubly so now with the tooling, where you literally are no longer in. You, just because you de declared a task doesn't mean it's running on a separate thread. You have no. You're not controlling that directly anymore. Right. Right. Hey, uh, John Robbins had a, a great quote. We were walking through this stuff with him, and he said something to the effect of, um, "You know, I've I've been writing these kinds of applications for decades, and I've never really understood what Windows was doing, and now I get right. to see it." Yeah, um, that's awesome. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a very powerful tool. You can, and you can get even beyond the sort of colorized view. You can get uh, more details. For example, if I want to know why it was blocked, I can just click on a region and understand exactly uh, what my thread was blocked on and why. Uh, when it gets unblocked, I can actually see visually what was unblocking it. There was some other thread that, that signaled some synchronization primitive that caused this other thread to wake up. So you can actually look at the stack of code that was executing at a particular point in time on a particular thread. Is that right? Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so, you know, very, very detailed insight. And in fact, you know, I, I keep coming back to sort of how the human mind is sort of good at visualizing patterns. We see patterns and we can recognize them. The profiler is another example where just the various patterns that you see, you start to recognize them and they start to mean certain things to you. And those meanings then translate into certain solutions. Um, and in fact, our team that's been building the profiler has been building up the sort of what they're calling a rogues gallery, but basically, you know, uh, exemplars for if you see this pattern, it's probably the following thing happening, and then here's how you should go and solve it. Um, you know, if you, and it allows you to very quickly identify preemption, or allows you to very quickly identify lock convoys, uh, and so forth. So it's it's a very a very exciting tool. And no kidding. Um, then beyond, you know, we, you you asked originally about um, debugging. debugging. We've added. Yeah, we've we've, ad we've added these parallel tasks and stacks window. We've added the concurrency visualizer. We've actually, where possible, we've actually gone beyond this and tried to just integrate nicely with Visual Studio wherever possible. So mm. pretty much all of the types we have uh, in the .NET framework for parallelism now, uh, where relevant, provide you know debugger type proxies and debug uh, display attributes just to make that integration really nice. So you can hover over a task 
uh, in your code while stopped at a breakpoint and see exactly what the task status is. You can see what function, if it hasn't started running yet, you can see you know, what function it will run. Uh, you can hover over your scheduler and see all the tasks that are queued to the scheduler without opening up any other windows in VS. This is all just within the editor. Um, we output ET, special ETW events from um, not just the upper edge parallel APIs like Parallel 4 and Parallel 4 each, but also uh, th with our synchronization primitives and the task type, uh, you can enable these additional ETW traces to find out every time a task uh, starts running and stops running, uh, every time a synchronization primitive encounters contention. And then you can use uh, a general ETW uh, viewer like uh, XPerf, uh, which is included with the Windows SD or Windows Server SDK, uh, to kind of really dive deep into the guts of, of what the system is doing. Um, even things like uh, in, IntelliTrace, which is the new kind of uh, support for historical debugging of, of a kind in Visual Studio, mm -hmm. uh, we've added events there so that you can see when, uh, for example, when a task is queued or when a task is started or when a task is waited on. Um, yeah, so we we really tried to in, uh, embed support for parallelism into all aspects of the um, the debugger that makes sense. Even really tiny things that most folks will never notice. Um, for example. Um, one of the things we have to be concerned about with writing parallel applications is uh, if internally we're doing synchronization, right? So, for example, with the task uh, with the task of T result type, you're basically it's a future. So you run this code, which it will it'll run asynchronously. In some point in the future, it'll become available, and then later you access its result. Um, and if you access its result and it hasn't started running yet, or if it's uh, or if it's currently running, we may need to block. Uh, waiting for this to come back. So now you're in your debugger, and uh, you access the result property, and all of a sudden the debugger freezes because it's unable to acquire the lock because something else is holding on to the lock. Um, and because the debugger has frozen the world, the thing that's holding on to the lock uh, won't run, so the debugger just sits with the, you know, the, the toilet bowl of death uh, <laughs> eventually <laughs> waiting for... <laughs> When can I go round and round? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now there's one waiting. I'm going to add to my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> um, waiting for this result to come back, and eventually the debugger will come back. It'll see, okay, this this funky val is is failing because uh, I'm obviously blocked on something. And after a few seconds, it'll kill it. But it's a fairly poor experience, especially because the debugger then actually um, generates a threat abort, which gets injected into the code in order to wake this thing up. And that can actually impact the future debugging of the application because that threat abort may have caused some problems. Um, so we've taken advantage of some new functionality that has been added in both the CLR and the debugger that allows us to basically inform the debugger that it's about to invoke through a funk eval some code uh, that will cause it to have this problem. Uh, and when the debugger sees that, when you kind of view this in the watch window, instead of putting up that little uh, circle, you know, circling blue uh, image, it'll ev immediately kill the funk eval and put up a message that said, the thing you want to do is going to require other threads to be running. Um, would you like me to do that for you? Uh, and so you can click on this little icon that says slip threads, and the debugger will then re-release all of the threads in the application until that funk eval completes. Wow. So that if you were you know, hitting the situation, you can then wake everything up, allow the, t the future, for example, to complete, and then you come back with the result in the debugger. And this is the kind of thing most people won't ever, won't ever see, but we've really tried wherever possible to Im improve the experience. Well, and not only in the code, but in the documentation, I was really, really happy to see a walkthrough um, of, of debugging a parallel application, I shrinksterize it for you. Shrinkster.com slash 1CQ6. 
and uh, and great documentation, good code, and and a great explanation of the uh, of the stacks window. And uh, just thank you for that. Great well, stuff. Yeah, the credit for that has to go to uh, Daniel Moth, who is the PM for our uh, debugger features, as well as Michael Blom, who is our um, user education writer. Uh, the, the two of them have done a very good job kind of uh, generating the documentation around the debugger functionality. Um, and uh, in particular, Daniel's done some great screencasts, uh, all of which are up on um, Daniel's blog, uh, danielmoth.com. Uh, or you can find from our Parallel Computing Dev Center, which we recently revamped. So if you if you haven't been in a while, definitely check it out. Just msdn.com slash concurrency or msdn.com slash parallel computing. Either of them will end up there. Um, and it's just a wealth of information on everything we've done. The whole team has been very, very focused not only on, on building the functionality, but also on writing and uh, creating samples and so forth. So we've got a plethora of articles and uh, podcasts like this with .NET Rocks. Uh, videos and screencasts and just a wealth of information to help get started with this stuff. Uh, so definitely recommend checking out the Dev Center and um, anytime there's new material that we've generated, with, generated, whether it's videos or articles, what it may be, we're, we're making sure that it gets up there and categorized in, a, in an explorable and useful manner. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. If you're developing a new line of business application, then you probably tried the latest Silverlight version. Now you can achieve even greater results by combining the functionalities of Silverlight 4 Beta with the richness of third-party controls. Our friends at Telerik are the first vendors to offer native support for Silverlight 4 Beta in their RAD Controls for Silverlight 4 CTP suite. The Telerik controls let you tap into the framework's great potential, like the native right mouse click and more. Be sure that all 38 controls benefit from the latest and greatest in Silverlight 4, so you can start building compelling applications right away. Check out the product at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Hey, Stephen, one of the things I realized when I started doing more 64-bit development is you found all the warts in stuff that worked in 64, didn't actually work properly, those kinds of things. I'm wondering how much of a reveal we're going to have running more parallel executing code, finding out what libraries and tools and things don't actually support parallel execution very well. You know, I'm not sure that um, from a parallelism perspective, we're actually going to see any significant difference there from 32-bit than we would otherwise see. I think one place we will start to see some differences is just it's another architecture to consider. And architectures become... um, can become very significant when it comes to performance tuning. Um, so you might tune your application for 32-bit, and all of a sudden you run it on 64-bit, and you see some really wacky numbers and performance you weren't expecting, just because uh, things even as simple as pointers are twice as big. Yeah. You know, so some of the data you may be moving around may be twice as big, and you're filling your memory bus with twice as much stuff, and you know your I/O channels and all that kind of stuff. So performance tuning on a variety of systems becomes even more important when you're talking about supporting multiple architectures. Well, and, I, and I'm not so much picking on the 32-bit versus 64-bit issue, although it's an interesting discussion all by itself, as much as I found I didn't hit any problems with certain libraries in the framework until I started actually running them in 64-bit mode and then saw that things behave differently. And I'm thinking that there are going to be classes in the .NET framework that when we try and execute them in parallel are going to struggle. 
Like they, they're not thread safe or, you know, they have it, they're going to be blocking and we're going to, we're gradually going to build up a repertoire of don't use this, this set of classes, use these ones instead to try and avoid those kinds of blocking issues. Uh, I understand. Yeah. So you're using the 64 bit as an analogy, just as kind of entering this new world of concurrency and what are exactly. the problems we might that, face. And, and, we, and we're told, don't worry, everything will be fine beforehand. No, but worry. when we actually get there, we find <laughs> out there's a few more warts than we thought. There are it, definitely you know, it's warts. It's actually and tricky to do some of those things. Absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the reasons I said we've made it easier, but not easy. Um, you still have to be aware that you're executing things on multiple threads. One of right. the Significant mm-hmm. things that we just have not addressed in .NET 4 or Visual C++ 10 or Visual Studio 2010 is sort of the real fundamental issue of correctness around um, making sure that when you parallelize your application, you're actually done so in a manner that will generate the right results. Um, you know, we we make it very easy to express the parallelism in your application, uh, so getting work to be run on multiple threads, but we don't do anything to kind of implicitly make sure that that work running on multiple threads isn't conflicting with other work, whether this is race conditions or deadlocks or live locks, you know, whatever it may be, you still have these fundamental issues. So you need to understand whether the code uh, you're using is safe to be run in this manner. And a, a great example is just, or a great class of examples is sort of the typical Microsoft documentation in .NET around thread safety, which right. for the vast majority of types in the .NET framework says something to the effect of all static members on this class may be used for multiple threads concurrently. They're thread safe. Uh, instance members are in no way guaranteed to be thread safe. Right. So, um, so basically, if you're using static members, you can use them safely for multiple threads. But as soon as you start calling instance methods, by default, you have to assume that you can only be calling them from from one thread at a time. Um, and a lot of times, you because we've made it so easy to uh, sort of express this parallelism in your application, you don't even necessarily realize that you're accessing these things from multiple threads. So, for right. example, uh, an example I've seen pop up multiple times is people that have a link query, and in that link query, uh, they've prior to the link query, they've defined an instance of random. And then in that link query, they're accessing the random instance in order to generate some random data within the query. So, for mm-hmm. example, they might do dot select, uh, you know, rand dot next or something like that. Uh, but as soon as you start introducing parallelism, when you add on to the query dot as parallel, and you know it's just about that easy to get the link query to start executing across multiple threads, now you run into this instance of that rand dot next call being called potentially from multiple threads concurrently. And rand dot next is one of these instance members of a class that is. Not only is it not guaranteed to be thread safe, but it definitely is not thread safe. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and so one of the, luckily random has a, a very telltale pattern. Um, it's one of these sort of psychic debugging things where if someone tells you random has started giving you all zeros, you can just sort of put your hand to your head and say, mm, I know what you're doing, you know, and uh, <laughs> they're using it for multiple threads just because that's typically how corruption of a random instance when accessed concurrently manifests. It just starts spewing out zeros. Um, and so there are some easy workarounds for this, but you have to know to employ those workarounds. Uh, for example, you can maintain, uh, one workaround would be to maintain uh, one random instance per thread. Uh, and there are a couple ways to do this. One is there's a new thread local type in .NET 4 that we've added, uh, where you can basically, rather than creating an instance of random, you can create an instance of thread local of random. And then within the plink query, instead of saying rand.next, you say rand.value.next. And now the peeling query will on each thread will be using a random instance local to that thread such that uh, it, it won't be conflicting on the same uh, or contending on the same random instance from multiple threads. But you kind of, you have to know to do that. 
Uh, or another solution would be to use a random number generator that actually is thread safe. So, for example, the RNG crypto service provider is the cryptographically strong random number generator in .NET, and it is thread safe for, for access from multiple threads. So you can use that instead of random, and you'll be good to go. But again, you have to sort of know this, and there's nothing built into the framework today that will tell you you've made a mistake. Yeah, I get the sense that we're going to build up a repertoire of here are the classes that are known thread safe. Here are their foibles when you when they do run multiple uh, concurrent execution, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's just knowledge that's going to take some time for the community at large to build up. Well, I also see you guys are starting to build some classes specifically. I mean, it's two different things here, right? There is does it function and then does it function well? I mean, it's one thing that, you, you know, your solution for random works. But it's not the most elegant thing in the world. We're creating a lot of different uh, instances just to deal with the thread safety. Right. And you know, it, this is a great example where the variety of solutions uh, entail different ramifications. So, for example, the thread local random solution um, it, it is very cheap. Uh, it's very efficient. Uh, you'll end up with only one random instance per thread. The downside is your randomness suffers because if you don't take extra means to ensure that the random instances are created with different seeds. You might end up with all the random instances being created at approximately the same time, getting initialized with the same system clock time, and therefore generating the same sequence of random numbers. Yeah, so they're very random numbers, except that they're exactly the same random numbers for everybody. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, and so maybe then you have to go to extra lengths to ensure maybe you seed each random with the thread ID or XORed with the time or something like that, you know, just to ensure that the sequence is different for each of the threads. Um, if you go with the RNG crypto service provider, you're going to get great randomness. Uh, it's going to be thread safe, you know, implicitly, but it's significantly more expensive, largely because generating cryptographically strong random numbers is a very expensive operation. Right. Um, and because it's thread safe, uh, now you're, you know, now you're running into this issue of spending a, a lot more time blocked waiting on, uh, this, this result to come back. Uh, so maybe you start combining these. You maintain one RNG crypto service provider per thread. And now you get, you know, the best of both worlds. But it's the kind of thing where you kind of have to weigh the, the, um, the pros and the cons to figure out what you actually want to accomplish. Um, this is also where these debugging tools and, and the profiling tools really come in handy. Um, I actually had an example where uh, I, was, I was writing an application and I paralyzed it with P-Link and I had just kind of you know, quickly looked over the query and thought that it was all going to be great uh, and I was going to get great scalability and I ran it and I got you know 1.2x speed up on a quad-core machine or something, just really mm -hmm. bad speed up. And so I ran the profiler under it and I saw red everywhere and nowhere mm -hmm. in my query did I have a lock. Um, except when I looked at what was causing all this red by clicking on all the, you know, clicking on the little red boxes on the profiler trace, everywhere I saw GUID, uh, the, the GUID class showing up. And I had been using GUID in my query uh, to uh, generate some unique identifiers throughout the query. But every time I called GUID dot, uh, new GUID or whatever the function is for creating a new GUID, create GUID, this was going into the, into, into the Windows stack and was ending up taking a lock within Win32. And I just didn't know this because nowhere in my in my code was I calling a lock, but it was being used under the covers. Um, and as soon as I ran it in the profiler, I was able to see this very, very quickly. Um, as an aside, I, you know, I talked about the debugging tools, parallel tasks and parallel stacks being predominantly for correctness, but they're actually good for finding these uh, performance issues as well. When I broke into the same application and I looked at parallel stacks, I saw all of my threads uh, blocked in this one call to, to getting this GUID. 
Uh, and then when I followed the stack trace up into native, I saw that, you know, at the top of the stack trace, they were all blocked on this lock. Um, so, you know, again, it sort of very quickly mm. visualized what was causing these, these performance problems. One lock can ruin your whole day. <laughs> Absolutely. But interesting that you were functionally correct, but did not get the performance you expected. Yep, exactly. And this is so one of these classic trade-offs and parallelism between, obviously, you never want to sacrifice correctness unless there are varying degrees of correctness that you might be okay with. Um, but you pretty much never want to sacrifice correctness. And then it becomes a game of how do I get the correctness I need uh, with the performance that is actually useful? Um, you know, because I could, I could maintain, I could paralyze my application and get perfect correctness by having a single lock wrap everything. Um, but obviously, I'm, I'm probably going to run slower than sequential at that point. Uh, I'm certainly not going to get any parallelism benefits, even though I've quote, quote, paralyzed my application. I've just serialized the whole thing by convoying on a single big lock. And that was, I think, what I was really hinting at when I was going down this whole path was that we're going to make calls into the .NET framework, and we're going to hit these locks we didn't know about. Yep. And, Absolutely. And, and and then there become, you know, there are a variety of, of tactics for working around them. Some, I actually put up a... Um, uh, a case study of a, of a sample app I'd worked on. We put it up on the blog for the concurrency visualizer team. Um, I can send a link afterwards. I guess we could put up with the show notes. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, I was writing, I had this well, a little backstory. So we have this issue uh, kind of working in the .NET framework, which is you introduce some types into the .NET framework and you have no idea at some later point in time who may consume them. You know, certainly externally to Microsoft, it's very difficult to find out. Um, and if you're listening to this to this uh, .NET Rock show and you are using parallel extensions, please email me. I'd love to know about it um, because you know it is so difficult to find out who's using this stuff. Um, but one place that we can get a little bit more insight is within Microsoft, and in particular within the .NET framework or within Visual Studio, because in one install you have all of these DLLs, you know, hundreds or thousands of DLLs that you can kind of troll through using uh, reflection techniques to kind of find out who's using your stuff. Right. Um, and so I wrote a little tool to very quickly do that that would basically re um, recur through all of my Visual Studio directories, looking for every DLL that existed, uh, and uh, using the CCI functionality, the common compiler infrastructure infra uh, uh, support, to basically look at every single instruction and see, you know, find all the, the instructions that were accessing methods from parallel extensions, and then generate a report for me so I know who would be using what. And at the end of the day, this ended up being a, a fairly uh, nice link query. And I thought to myself, oh, sweet. You know, I'll, it's a link query. It's obviously taking a long time. This was taking minutes to run. I'll slap as parallel on it, and uh, and all will be good. Um, and unfortunately, I slap as parallel on it, and it took the exact same amount of time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even though I saw all these threads were running. Um, and so the, the blog kind of walks through the investigation and, and what I ended up doing. And in this case, the CCI infra infrastructure itself was actually taking a big lock around the most important piece of code. And there was, you know, because I didn't have access to the CCI code itself, um, there was very little I could do around kind of fixing the lock or making it more fine-grained or going for lock-free approaches or something. So what I ended up doing was uh, spinning up multiple app domains uh, because locks in .NET, for the most part, um, are isolated to a single app domain. So if I take a lock on a particular kind of object, um, and then I, and I do that in two different app domains, uh, that lock, even if it's sort of the same lock in the same assembly, it's going to be two different instances of it. Um, and so I was able to get scalability by launching a separate app domain, basically one per thread, uh, in order to ensure that when this lock was taken, it wasn't impacting any other processing that was happening. Tricky. But still maintaining correctness. So there are these 
tricks you can employ, but they really are sort of tricks. I mean, they're, they're workarounds for what is the core problem of something wanting to protect, you know, protect this universe and basically saying no one else can come into this region while I'm here, um, which is the bane of scalability. For sure. I mean, I've worked on a lot of scalable systems and we've generally stayed away from the multi-threaded model and really gone the multi-process model where you've got a queue and you can have as many instances popping off this queue as you want, but that presumes a sort of granular work unit that the other instances don't need to touch. Right. And it, it, assumes, a, it assumes a very sort of um, uh, embarrassingly parallel or delightfully parallel or pleasantly parallel, whatever you want to call it, these very isolated units that can be processed independently and don't require interactions. And once you start exactly. requiring interactions, the, the more isolation you have, the more expensive it is to get past those isolation boundaries. Uh, mm -hmm. So if I'm running in the same app domain in the same process, and I want to touch another piece of state, no problem. It's just in my, my virtual memory space. I can just touch it. Um, but if, you know, if, if I'm using app domains, now I have to start using remoting. If I'm using separate processes, now I have to start using cross-process techniques for getting right. data. If I'm using cross-machine, now I'm communicating between nodes. You know? And um, the, it becomes more and more scalable as you start adding more and more um, systems, but the cost of communicating between components becomes more and more expensive. It's higher and higher. And and the more interaction that is required, the less efficient that becomes. And I, and the point I'm trying to back into here is I'm trying to get a good picture of the kinds of work we're going to do that need higher levels of interaction. Uh, unlike those, I mean, the, you know, the web's a great example of that naturally massive parallel executing model. But as we get into high more interactive models where we have to stay closer coupled, then then this approach makes such a difference. Uh, yeah, and you look at you look at something like um, Axum, which is uh, right. an incubation language we put up on the um, the DevLab site, the MSN DevLab site, um, and it's really focused on this model of you have largely based on concepts from the web. You know, you have. Um, lots of independent agents or actors that might all be communicating through message passing, um, very much like request and response between browsers and servers on the web. Um, th those independent agents or actors may themselves have some level of concurrency internally. They may themselves be doing parallel op operations, but you've sort of taken it from a very, very large um, set of parallelism where all nodes are talking to all nodes and it's just this big spaghetti of interaction to one where you kind of sanction off pieces of it into logical units. Those logical units might have some parallels internally, but at a significantly lower degree of parallelism than the entire operation. And then these components as a unit just need to deal with sending you know, communication back and forth between the other large units and you significantly decrease this spaghetti of, of communication that results. So, And I think those are sort of the models we'll, we'll see evolve as you start reaching higher and higher core counts, you know, 256 cores, 512 cores, or logical processors, whatever it may be, 1,000, 8,000, who knows, um, you're going to start needing to actually, except for the most embarrassingly parallel problems, where you can just fire off one operation to run on a logical processor and be done with it, you're going to have to start seeing these architectures evolve where they're very asynchronous, uh, where individual components might employ a large degree of parallelism, but certainly not enough to encompass the box, and you require lots of these independent agents communicating to, to take advantage of all that exists. I guess the real challenging part here is where we find opportunities to sort of briefly parallelize, given chunk of, of work, we then have to sort of recompose all of those threads back together into one touch point, some class or, or some object that essentially receives all the results of that parallel execution. And, and that thing has to be really thread-safe and tolerant to 
any number of threads hitting it. Right, and that's you know that's one of the things that we spent a lot of time on with parallel extensions in .NET four. Um, it, we, we basically focused with the higher level uh, models that we have around parallel four, parallel for each, parallel link, and so forth. It's really about um, you know how do you partition the data, how do you process it as efficiently in, as possible on multiple threads, and how do you merge the results back together? Right. So, for example, with PLink, you write your link query and you enumerate over it on a single thread. Well, enumerating over the results on a single thread means that all these results from multiple threads need to then be merged back together in some fashion. But you guys and do that. We don't have to. We, exactly. So our goal is to, by raising the level of abstraction is to tackle that difficult problem so that developers don't have to. So you add as parallel, we partition the incoming data source, we run the link query on multiple threads processing it, and as results are generated, we then merge those back together, taking care of the thread safety of doing that merge operation uh, and the synchronization and, and yielding the results back to you. Now we do provide some knobs that allow you to tweak exactly how we do it, uh, because again, there are everything in parallelism has trade-offs. You know, if you want to uh, minimize latencies, well, it's going to cost you more synchronization. Mm. Uh, if you want to minimize synchronization, well, it might be a little longer before you get some data because we're going to be buffering it and then releasing entire buffers at a time in order to minimize not having to, or so that we don't have to synchronize on every single item. Now we're going to synchronize on a buffer. You know, therefore, uh, of multiple items, therefore amortizing the cost of that synchronization across all the items in the buffer. Um, so we provide you those knobs, but by default, we try and do something that makes sense, that's inherently correct, uh, and only if you need a little bit more control do you go in and kind of tweak what we're doing. And then you can take it a step further, and if you don't like how we do it at all, you could do it yourself uh, and kind of provide your own merging support uh, if, you, if you really need to. Well, and I'm also thinking, yeah, when you do it this yourself, you, you need that those holders, those, those buff, you, you described them as buffers, but they've, they've got to be some kind of object ultimately. I don't want to write directly into memory here that is going to be really thread safe. I'm thinking also, uh, didn't you guys recently release a, a concurrent dictionary? Yeah. So this is a nice segue into some of the, the work we've done around data structures for .NET 4. And I should mention, I realize this is .NET rock. So we're talking about managed code here, but, um, for those folks listening that also do native development, a lot of the things we're talking about here, we have direct counterparts for in the CRT in Visual C++ 10. Uh, and that's including things like Parallel 4 and Parallel for each tasks, uh, and these containers. So, um, with regards to kind of concurrent collections, for those folks that, uh, kind of started with .NET back in .NET 1.0, uh, you'll remember that there was this synchronized pattern where the collections like ArrayList or or stack, or queue, or hash table, they all had this static method on them called synchronized. Right. Uh, and you could call synchronized and pass in one of these collections, and then you'd get back another instance of that collection uh, that was sort of a, a synchronized wrapper around the original, where basically a lock would be taken around every single operation. Um, and there were a variety of, of problems with this approach, which is one of the reasons why when .NET 2.0 came about and the generic versions of all these classes were introduced, list of T instead of array list, stack of T instead of stack, that synchronized pattern went away. Um, well, it was a little overkill. I mean, it's sort of swatting a fly with a Buick, you know? Yeah, every, everything is synchronized everywhere, and it sort of slows you down a bit. It also caused uh, additional problems. First, from a, from the um, from a pay-for-play perspective, um, the collections because of the way that this was engineered, basically, the, the, when you called ArrayList.Synchronized, you were getting back an internal type called SyncArrayList, which was derived from ArrayList, overrode all of the methods to basically take a lock and delegate to the base class. Um, that required that all of the methods had to be virtual, uh, which means that you're paying for this 
the virtualness of these methods, even though the main reason for them being virtual was to support these derived synchronized types. And so if you look at the generic types, you'll notice that none of those methods are virtual um, because non-virtual invocation is a lot faster than virtual invocation. But it also led to conceptual problems where uh, developers would write sort of in the patterns that they were used to with sequential code, but end up with problems. And they sort of be lulled into this false sense of security because, oh, my collections are synchronized. Right. So there's a the very common pattern with stack where you say, if stack.count is greater than zero, stack.pop, right? Well, with the synch and you use this stack.synchronize, you think, oh, great, this operation is now going to be safe. I can do this from multiple threads, except each of the individual operations is synchronized, but not the whole thing. So when I say stack.count, Yes, it's true that I'm accessing stack.count in a thread-safe manner. And when I call stack.pop, I'm accessing in a thread-safe manner. But that entire operation of checking the count and only and only popping something if it was if there was something there is not. So between the time that I call stack.count and the time that I call stack.pop, someone else may have come along in another thread, removed the value, and now stack.pop is going to throw an exception. I ran into this several times. Um, well, once in, a, in exactly the way that you're mentioning. It's like, Oh, well, I don't have to worry about it now. Oh, yeah, but you still have to worry about synchronization in your code. I mean, just because the 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 the, the stack or the collection is thread safe doesn't mean yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have problems. And Exactly. Uh, yeah, and, and I also found the documentation lacking, you know, it just says, "Okay, get the sync root, now it's thread safe." Hmm? Yeah. Really? Exactly. That's it? That's all you're going to tell me? So. Yep, and which which leads you into this you know, assumption of oh great if I do that I'm I'm good to go you know right. uh, and you're not the other other issue of course is these as you get into larger and larger systems um, that lock that single lock becomes a real um, uh, source of contention and can be a, a significant scalability bottleneck so for all these reasons we've introduced some new um, thread safe collections into .NET four in the new system .collections .concurrent namespace um, and, and these collections are are try to address all the issues we've just talked about. Um, where possible, they, so wherever possible, they minimize the use of locks. Um, and if they do need to use locks, they end up using fine grain locking, meaning rather than having one lock, they'll have uh, multiple locks and they'll try to distribute the load across them such that a single lock won't be contended by a, a lot of threads. And those number of locks may uh, will likely increase as the number of threads that you're using increases. Um, we've uh, tried to encapsulate kind of the patterns that we want people to be using in the APIs themselves. Uh, the APIs themselves. So, for example, concurrent stack of T, um, unlike stack of T, does not expose a pop method. Um, there's, you can't say concurrent stack dot pop. What you can say is concurrent stack dot try pop. Um, which encapsulates that pattern of both checking to make sure that there's data there and returning it in one fell swoop um, so that you don't do these two separate operations. You say if concurrent stack dot try pop um, passing in the out parameter where you want the data to be stored, and then if that if was successful inside the if block, you can then use the result. Um, yeah. So we, we've tried to kind of make these things more usable and encapsulate the parallelism concepts right into them. We've got concurrent stack. Uh, and concurrent queue. Uh, both concurrent stack and concurrent queue are lock-free data structures, which means internally they don't ever block uh, on synchronization primitives. Instead, they rely on the lower-level mechanism that locks themselves rely on, namely interlocked and compare and swap operations, otherwise known as CAS operations, uh, for manipulating data structures in a, ma in a way where uh, a thread is always, at least one thread is always guaranteed to make forward progress. 
And if multiple threads are contending for this data structure at the same time, uh, ones that lose the race may have to loop around again and try again. Um, but it, it results in significantly less synchronization than if locks were being used, uh, and thus more scalability. And in fact, uh, one of the developers on our team, uh, I don't know if it's already been published or will be shortly, but it'll be up on the Dev Center when it is, uh, recently wrote a paper comparing uh, the performance of the concurrent collections with their uh, non-concurrent alternatives. Um, and uh, actually, a few of our developers did this. Uh, and you can get a sense where, based on the kind of workloads you're using and the kind of machines that you're on, what sort of performance characteristics you can expect and when you should actually be strongly considering using these concurrent collections because they'll lead to significantly better performance. Um, and I say when because there are some times when uh, they may not provide value. Um, there's just, you know, if you have a significant amount of contention, just huge amount of contention, all you're doing is banging away at these collections, uh, blocking can actually be, be be better than the lock-free techniques that these collections employ. Uh, so if in certain cases, it may actually be better to just lock around a, a collection rather than using one of these new things. But we've engineered them with the most common scenarios in mind and to them for the most common scenarios where, in general, they will provide better performance uh, than the uh, uh, locks around the non-thread-safe alternatives. So in addition to concurrent stack and concurrent queue, there are two other uh, concurrency or concurrent containers we've built. One is concurrent bag. Um, so concurrent queue is this FIFO data structure, first in, first out, um, meant for these producer-consumer scenarios where producers are generating data in a, in a, and putting into this container, and then consumers are pulling it out in a FIFO manner. Uh, concurrent stack is similar, except it's LIFO, last in, first out. So producers are producing data and consumers are pulling it out in a LIFO manner. Concurrent bag is also producer-consumer. Producers are pushing data in and consumers are taking data out. Um, but it's actually optimized for the case where those producers and consumers may actually be the same thing. Um, because concurrent bag doesn't provide any ordering guarantees, it can play some optimization tricks internally that may um, disturb the order around which data generated by producers is consumed by consumers. Um, but it can, uh, because of that, it can kind of eschew the extra synchronization costs necessary to provide those guarantees um, and, and do some internal um, data structure management to make it more efficient to access data in certain circumstances. Uh, mm -hmm. What it actually does is it maintains uh, thread local data structures. This is getting back to the concept of minimizing synchronization by using more isolation. And if a producer generates a lot of data and then wants to consume it, it doesn't have to synchronize with any other threads because it just goes to its local queue and pulls out its, its own data. Only if it goes to its local queue to get data and finds it doesn't have any, does it then go and, and grab data potentially from other queues, from other threads that have been accessing the bag. Wow. Uh, so, you know, there's another example where we're taking advantage of, of parallelism techniques, in this case, isolation or, or sort of lack of synchronization uh, to uh, get better performance in, in certain scenarios. All three of these types, by the way, concurrent queue, concurrent stack, and concurrent bag, uh, implement a new uh, interface called iProducerConsumer Collection, which is meant for these producer-consumer scenarios. And then we have other data structures, ones that we ship in the box and then ones that uh, developers everywhere can write, uh, that wrap this using it as sort of the underlying thread-safe storage mechanism and providing additional functionality on top, uh, one of which is the new blocking collection type, which takes any iProducerConsumer collection and provides blocking and bounding semantics so that you can just add data into this thing uh, as 
producers can just be shoving data in. And if it gets full, where full is up to the developer to specify what full means, those producers will block and won't complete their ad operation until uh, there's room available, in which case the, the data will enter and the producers will wake up and continue on. And consumers can just take from the collection and they'll block until there's data available. And once there's data available, they'll pull it out. Uh, and you can plug in any iProducer consumer collection you want and get these bounding and blocking semantics, which are very co- uh, very common in pipelining scenarios or other sort of producer-consumer where you've got a set of threads dedicated to generating data and a set of threads gen- uh, dedicated to working with that data. Um, and then finally, there's the uh, concurrent dictionary, which you mentioned to start this conversation. Um, concurrent dictionary is actually one of my favorite types. It's uh, it's basically like dictionary of TKT value. Uh, it implements iDictionary of TKT value, um, but it's thread safe, meaning that uh, you can have multiple readers and multiple writers all banging on this collection at the same time, um, and they don't have to worry about doing so corrupting the data structure. So it's something like dictionary, the non-thread safe dictionary. You can have any number of readers you want at the same time, but as soon as you have a writer, no one else can be using the dictionary at the same time. Um, and that's up to the developer to ensure. And as a result, you typically have to lock around all operations, not just writes, but reads as well, because you need to ensure that if a write is happening, no readers are also accessing the dictionary. So are you saying this is a, a lot more performant than uh, a synchronized uh, collection of days of yore? Yeah, so typically if you, uh, days of yore, you would create a dictionary and you would lock around all access to it including reads. And unfortunately, one of the most common uses for a dictionary is some kind of cache, where reads are very, very, very common. You might spend 95% of your time reading and only 5% of your time writing. And so you're paying all these synchronization costs, um, even for the reading paths, because you need to ensure that you're not reading at the same time that you're writing. So what Concurrent Dictionary does is it, um, it's, it, its implementation internally is very special, such that reads are lock-free, but are still safe to be done while writes are occurring. Writes are done using locks, but they're done with fine-grained locking, where the more uh, the more cores you have or the more threads you have, the more locks will be used internally, and different as- different portions of the data structure will be protected by different locks. So wow. that even if you have lots of threads writing at the same time, they won't all be contending for, for the same lock. And so you can get significantly better throughput when accessing this dictionary than when using a regular dictionary when you need to do so for multiple threads. It's interesting that more locks is a performance solution. Yeah, it's counterintuitive a little bit. But it's more granular locks. Exactly. Think about it. You, you go to a football game, and uh, like the, the Super Bowl, which was yesterday, and uh, you, you want to go to the bathroom. And you know, if they only had one bathroom for the entire stadium, you'd be pretty upset. So what do they do? They add more bathrooms. Mm. Uh, people still have to form lines outside of each of the bathroom because they're not going to have one bathroom per person. Um, but but the lines end up being significantly shorter because they've been distributed across the bathrooms, each of which has a lock on its door to make sure that only one person or you know only a certain number of people get in at a time. But you only have to go to one bathroom. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of lock-free, my favorite subject, software <laughs> transactional memory. Yes. <laughs> so Software transactional memory. Yeah, and um, I guess it's not going to be part of the regular .NET framework? It's uh, still going to be a separate thing? Certainly not part of .NET 4. So um, the the team we have working on software transactional memory, uh, STM.NET, released a, an implementation of this on DevLabs, MSDN DevLabs. So if you, if you want, you can go and download it. Um, it's based on .NET 4 Beta 1. Uh, one of the interesting things about it, though, is it's 
deeply, deeply integrated with the CLR itself. It required mm -hmm. modifications to the garbage collector, it required modifications to the JIT compiler. So it's not just a library you install, it's an right. entire runtime that you install. Um, but there's a great, um, a great 70 or 80 page kind of getting started guide that walks through a variety of scenarios and shows how to use this stuff and provides a lot of sample code so you can really understand how you would use STM.NET um, and how it would impact the systems that you develop. Um, one of the interesting things about it, though, is, you know, if you look across the industry, there are very few systems for mainstream um, mainstream languages, C-sharp or Java or C++, that actually have a performant or or you know, high-quality implementation of STM. Uh, as a result, a lot of the, the companies that have been working on it have kind of moved it back to sort of the research area, um, which is why you see STM.NET just being an incubation project on our team and not making it into the .NET Framework 4. There's still a lot of issues that need to be worked out around performance, uh, around the kinds of situations where it actually it makes an impact and so forth. Uh, so you know, definitely we encourage people to go up and try it out, but you should not expect it in .NET 4. And just, um, I don't, we're coming to the end of the show, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time describing STM. We did a show in October 2009 with Dana Groff and Yossi Levinoni about, yep. uh, show 487 about STM. But in a nutshell, it, um, allows you to write transactional code, much like you would write against the database to begin a transaction to do something that you're going to do from multiple threads and then uh, at the end, you either get an indication after you commit it that it didn't work because you had a, a race condition or that it did work. If it did work, great. But if it didn't, then it will execute again. And Right. And I think of this, you know, it, it, very, it, it is very much a parallel to uh, transaction and databases where the, the database monitors these transactions. And if it sees that two transactions had a conflict, because it's handled all of the storage of all the data that's being modified, it can just, you know, either delete those temporaries, whatever it may be, roll back one of the, the transactions and try it again. Uh, transactional memory does the exact same thing, uh, but against memory instead of against the database store. Right. Uh, so it's just monitoring all these memory axes, maybe maintaining its own shadow store or something. Um, and if it sees a conflict between two concurrent transactions, uh, it can then just throw away the, the work that it did and restart that transaction, uh, which is not something that you can normally do with, with code because uh, you're making your, your code has side effects. So as you're running, you're making modifications and you can't just restart it because those modifications have actually taken effect. They've actually happened. So, right. But if you can, in effect, make it so that they never happened, you can run them again. Of course, overhead is the big red flag that goes up for everybody. And yes, uh, I think the value that we got from Dana and Yossi was eight cores, that if you have eight cores or higher, you can expect to see an increase in performance. But up till then, you'll see a decrease in performance. Is that mm -hmm. about still true? Uh, if memory serves, that's right. Although I haven't looked at the numbers recently. Yeah. So, but, but this is obviously preparing for a future when we do have 512 cores and, uh, it's, it, at some point it becomes silly to do it any other way. Yeah. It's a really, uh, promising set of techniques that's getting a lot of interest from the research community still. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure we'll see that moving forward as well. Awesome. Well, uh, we're just about out of time. Is there anything else that we missed uh, that we can we can point people to at least in the next couple minutes? Uh, no, I think that was a pretty complete tour. I'd, you know, again, I'd love to hear any feedback folks have. At this point, .NET 4 is is 
is baked and ready to go. So um, you know, any feedback we receive, uh, unless it's bug reports, obviously, uh, on features people would like will are, are very welcome and will end up influencing future versions rather than .NET 4, but are extremely welcome. And I encourage anyone listening to this to email me. Um, you can just, my email address is stoub at microsoft.com. Uh, we can put that in the, the show notes as well. And uh, please feel free to email me directly. You can get in touch with us through our forums, through our blog. And all of this is available, uh, all these links are available through uh, the, our dev center at msdn.com slash concurrency or msdn.com slash parallel computing. Um, so definitely check everything out. You know, go and ex- play, explore. Uh, and if you are using it let, it, let let us know. We'd love to hear about it. Thank you, Stephen. And again, congratulations on shipping some great software that uh, hopefully will change the face of programming. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. And congratulations to you guys on what I understand to be more than 500 shows. That's quite remarkable. Thank you. <laughs> I still can't believe it. And we'll see you <laughs> next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a